The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, it's good to see uh, most of you back after lunch for the graveyard slot, they usually call this, which is the first session after lunch when uh, we're feeling perhaps a little bit sleepy. Uh, and our subject for uh, this afternoon, uh, the first one anyway, is uh, Christianity and science. Christianity and science. Having uh, tackled morality in the first session uh, this morning, kind of sense that uh, these are all such big areas. We really could have done a second session on, on morality and, and uh, uh, built on that. But uh, Steve and I were trying to cover as much territory as we could today, introductions to these different themes. And so... Uh, we are moving on now to this, this other subject uh, of the faith and science. Uh, knowing uh, Steve's newfound uh, interest in cigars, I know what to get him for Christmas um, this year. Uh, let's just read uh, from the first few verses of John's Gospel, Gospel of John uh, chapter 1. And reading from verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When uh, the Apostle John opened this gospel, uh, he was obviously, uh, it's clearly to uh, the uh, informed reader who's encountered Scripture before, was referring immediately back, self-consciously referring back to Genesios, to the first book of the Old Testament and the first few verses that establishes the reality of God and the distinction between the Creator and the creature. Now, in order to begin to speak about science and uh, its relationship to Christianity and the Christian faith, again, many different things and many different avenues could be pursued. I'll try not to digress too far off what I've actually kind of prepared uh, as a summary of this. Uh, we could, of course, talk about um, the development of the scientific method, uh, we could talk about the um, rise of Darwinian evolutionary theory, theories. We could talk about the theology that informed uh, Darwinianism. Uh, we, we really could sort of deal with the creation-evolution question. All kinds of things could be discussed in, when you deal with Christianity and science. How do you narrow that down to something manageable uh, for you know, 50 minutes, 45 minutes here? So what I want to do is really just talk about what is required for us to have a coherent understanding of science. What assumptions actually govern, as Steve really kind of introduced this in his session on history, what is it that we really have to believe about reality in order for us to have an uh, understanding, a scientific understanding of reality? And we can discuss a little bit about what that means, and then I'll leave some time for questions. In the uh, ancient world, uh, science 
and magic and occultism were very, very closely related. Uh, the, the idea of um, science of, uh, means knowledge, conscience, self-knowledge. So science, strictly speaking, just means knowledge. In the, our contemporary understanding of science, we tend to think more in terms of the scientific method. We don't think just broadly in terms of science meaning knowledge. It's, uh, we, we think of a particular route to gaining knowledge, and we think about what we call today the empirical method. I don't actually have any PowerPoint, uh, nor does Steve, I don't think, so I don't know why that keeps flashing on and off, but um, I make the points and the Holy Spirit provides the power. I find that works best. <laughs> All my points are PowerPoints. So... Uh, <clears throat> We, we actually, uh, when we think about science, we tend to think really in terms of a more specific understanding, and that is the scientific method or the empirical method, which is the use of our senses of uh, inductive reasoning to move from particular observations of a thing to general conclusions, testability, repeatability, experimentation. That is what we tend to think in the popular parlance with respect to the term science. But it was much broader than that originally. And interestingly, if you look at the, uh, as you look at the practice of medicine, the science of medicine in the ancient world, which was probably their, uh, the, their primary area of interest was in healing, when you think about ancient science, uh, there was a close tie-in between, in fact, the very term physician comes from the idea of the Greek physicist who was concerned about the control of nature in order to bring healing. And the gods of uh, healing, like Asclepius, uh, were invoked by doctors. We call them doctors uh, now, and that's actually because we uh, ported a Christian term uh, over into the healing profession to Christianize the idea of medicine. The term doctor was used of Christian teachers. And we later in West, the Western tradition applied the term doctor to those who teach us about physical healing as well. But in the ancient world, there was a strong connection between the idea of science and what we now today would call magic or occultism, alchemy and things like uh, of, uh, of that nature, because there was no real belief in there being a transcendent God who is distinct from his creation who called all things into existence. Rather, there was really a belief that at root, at the back of all things, there was either some kind of um, uh, cosmic impersonal oneness, or there was just really a, uh, an, uh, an atomic sea of particularity. And our, with there being no God, and no ultimate design plan, and no order and structure given to the universe by, by a personal creator God, the only hope for human beings in the world was to manipulate nature. Nature is all there is. So you, the idea was that the sciences were pursued in terms of the control of nature, the manipulation of nature, for our benefit. Hence the idea, everything from alchemy... Uh, to bringing about healing in terms of the powers of the gods and the use of oracles and divination and so on. So in the ancient world, there was not there would the scientific uh, cause, if you like, 
was not defined by a clarity of understanding in terms of distinct entities and testing and observation. Uh, rather, there was, uh, it was a, a belief that the world was filled with mystery and spirits and gods living between the spaces of the atoms. And man, the physician, the, the Greek thinker, the philosopher, he had to unlock the keys to reality and somehow then manipulate the environment, manipulate the world in order to control it, because there was no true God who was in control. And I'm going to touch on why, with the advent of Christianity uh, and its progress in history, the idea of magic was really broken as a power uh, in the ancient world, because there was not now a connectedness of all things at root. Let me try and give you another illustration about to try and land the plane here. Um, the totem pole in North American Indian uh, beliefs represents the same idea, really, that the Greeks had of the chain of being, that everything was somehow interwoven, interconnected. The ancient Greeks were evolutionists. Uh, they believed that, at bottom, everything was interrelated somehow in a, in a very particular way so that things had moved, uh, gods and man had all evolved out of the chaos of nature. Nature itself was God, small g, and everything that was had emerged out of that primeval chaos. And with that interconnectedness comes the ideas of, the, uh, grow the ideas of the occult, of uh, contagion, of uh, like attracts like and various laws of magic. So there was no clear distinction uh, the idea of what we now consider modern science was very much something that grew out of a Christian understanding of reality. That was not something that was really <clears throat> grasped or understood by ancient uh, philosophy. Now, I know, of course, that the Greeks were interested in, in anatomy. I understand that they were interested to some degree in observation. But what you don't hear about the Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle were all their occultic and esoteric beliefs. They're not talked about. They're spiritism. And interestingly enough, um, the co-discoverer, so-called, of the alleged positive role of natural selection in bringing about new species, Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, who presented to the Royal Society at the same time as Charles Darwin, he became Britain's leading occultist. And there's a very good reason for that. When you basically take a naturalistic view of reality and the interconnectedness of all things, you move yourself back out of the realm of science into the realm of uh, magic. Science then means knowledge, and uh, modern science talks about the discovery of certain types of knowledge, at least, in terms of this method of observation, of induction. The, uh, the first, what we might call, uh, academic interest in this particular area of, of uh, using testing and observation uh, in terms of what we now call modern science arose in the, in the scholastic period amongst uh, medieval monks and friars who were writing at the time, and uh, progressively developed the, 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 the peculiar interest. Uh, again, much of the focus of the early sciences was in medicine, uh, because science should be practical. Uh, one of the most impractical and waste of money so-called scientific projects I was reading about in the paper the other day, the, um, the woman who's been heading up the uh, uh, SETI project, 
for many years in the States is stepping down and they've been struggling for funding because NASA defunded them in the mid-90s. You know what the SETI project is, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, you know, we're listening to the skies in, in the hope that uh, finally E.T. will tune in and, and uh, phone home or whatever it is. Uh, in the past, we didn't have that kind of money to throw away. So the focus of much of the sciences, even in the Christian era, was on uh, healing, on medicine, on uh, uh, treating people. So there grew an interest in anatomy and an interest in the study of the body and so forth. And uh, as you know, the Christian scientist uh, Harvey uh, discovered the circulation of the blood and modern medicine was born. Right? The Greeks, from, from ancient Greece, we used to let people's blood uh, and drain it away when they were sick. Um, when they probably needed a transfusion. Uh, so we have made headway. But that's, it's, it is important to draw those distinctions so that we understand that science, broadly speaking, is knowledge. Uh, modern science is the attempt to understand and develop a comprehensive understanding of reality in terms of uh, the natural world and cause-effect relationships through empirical investigation. Now, where this gets complicated uh, is that there is a perception out there today, and it's very much peddled by the atheistic propagandists especially, um, and we might call it scientism, which is really the idea that the only kind of knowledge that is worth anything, and the only kind of access to reality that we really have, and the, own, the savior of mankind, the new priesthood as it were, are the modern scientists, the modern physicians, who are alone able to understand and manipulate reality. Uh, this is really what uh, a lot of the social scientific engineering is all about, even in Canada today, and our redefinition of gender and so forth. It's actually a form of social sciences are about the manipulation of reality. Canada is spoken of as a social experiment. It's a good illustration, actually, because what does an experiment require? What's the first thing you need to be able to do to do an experiment? What's the first thing that's required in an experiment? A controlled environment. You, to do an experiment, you need to control all of the pieces. And you need to be able to control those pieces so that in another uh, context, you can repeat the same thing. You can't do an experiment if you can't control the variables. You know, how much of this chemical is mixed with that chemical? Well, in a social experiment, uh, which we are apparently in with the elite experimenting on us like lab rats right now, is the necessity for control and regulation. But I digress onto my last session. Let's come back to this particular form of uh, science. The idea of scientism really says that uh, the empirical method, empiricism, is really the only access we have to the world. It's a kind of materialism. There is only one thing, there's matter, and we are atomic material machines, and we are, just, we are investigating the properties of matter. Now, if we had uh, the time to critique this particular worldview, uh, I think it was Ernst Mack, the famous... Um, a 20th century scientist who says, we know as much about spirit as we do about matter. Uh, when science, modern science, makes all these claims about knowing everything about reality in the world, as my friend at Oxford, Dr. John Lennox, likes to say, if you ask any leading scientist a very simple question, 
When you say, <clears throat> what is at the root, or the, the heart of the universe, they say it's energy. And you say, what is energy? Nobody can tell you. I mean, you can describe its effects. You can talk about how it moves, how it works. But nobody actually knows what energy is. The more we actually discover empirically, the more we realize we don't understand and we don't know. And uh, this was something that actually David Hume pointed out. He said that really we can talk in, in generalities about uh, uh, elasticity and causality and these kind of things. But he says, but we really, we really don't understand or know the specifics. There are a few principles that we like to deduce, but how much of the detail do we really understand? So there is a kind of claim today when we speak about science, I don't mean to suggest that we need to take on a, the Christian view does not take on the idea that uh, empirical explanations are the only kinds of explanations of the world that matter or count or can actually be relied upon. There was a school of uh, philosophy, the logical positivists, who really took this view that uh, only empirically justified statements, that is, things that you can really prove and test, uh, are ones that should be taken seriously. So any statements about morality and metaphysics, they're to be dismissed. Of course, the main problem for the positivists was that you couldn't empirically test their own definition of what knowledge really was. So <clears throat> we're not talking about reducing. We must not, as Christians, reduce knowledge to the area of the sciences, but we recognize it as an important aspect of uh, how we can gain access and understanding uh, of the world, and it's God-given. So, science prides itself on the idea that we look at evidences from the natural world in order to reach conclusions. The complexity involved in this that we now understand, at least it's been reflected on in the 20th century in some detail by philosophers of science, is that unless you have the correct worldview, you can't properly interpret the evidence. So somebody might say, well, we've got this evidence, we've got this fact and this evidence for this idea, but a fact to be a fact is already being interpreted. Otherwise, it's just raw data. So somebody says, we've observed this fact. Well, those facts are dependent upon the worldview or the theory in, within which they are being understood and interpreted. So there is always a tension going on in our understanding of science between our worldview, that is our assumptions that we bring to the world, and the evidence or the data that we are looking at. So our worldview helps us interpret the evidence, but the, our experience also helps us in our understanding of our worldview. It helps develop our worldview. So there is a tension going on there all of the time. A right worldview allows you to interpret the world correctly. Which means, of course, that much of the, what passes for science today is wrong-headed. Because even if we realize that uh, a kettle boiling lifts the lid as a scientific observation, that doesn't help us to understand uh, why every time water reaches a certain temperature, it boils. Why doesn't the, the, uh, the point at which water boils from one week to the next change? Why is it always the same? 
Well, that question, these kinds of questions are answered in terms of our overall worldview. So what are the basic assumptions of what we call modern science? Having recognized that uh, science as we uh, understand it is now in, in the Western context, grew in the lap of a Christian worldview, what are the basic assumptions of science? What do we need to presuppose for us to be able to say that water boiling at this temperature uh, will in invariably lift the lid? Or water boiling in a pan at such and such, uh, uh, for such and such amount of time will take X amount of time to boil this egg. Or my grandmother was a brilliant scientist. She could mix all kinds of chemicals together, stick them in this thing called an oven, heat them for the same amount of time, and every time she did it, she got the same result. That's great science. Why is it that those things work? Well, what do we need to believe for us to pursue this uh, path of scientific investigation. The first assumption is that there is a real world that exists, and it consists of distinct entities. Now, that might sound like, well, of course, a real world exists, and it, it consists of distinct entities, but that's not agreed upon. By uh, not even, not, we're not even now talking about East and Western thinkers, it's not even agreed upon by those in the Western tradition. Ernst Mack, for example, didn't believe in the existence of atoms. He said they were useful fictions. Is there a real world outside of your sense perceptions? Uh, Steve was touching on this in the last session. But David Hume, I think it was, who said, uh, we are a bundle of sensations. That's all. So how do you know that what your mind is... Rep you see, your knowledge in scientific terms is like... Um, the film of a camera. You don't have the, uh, uh, you, you, the, the world, as you know it, is mediated through your mind. Like a, a picture that you take is mediated through the camera when they used to have films. So how do you know that what's on your Steve probably has a camera like that still, or a wind-up one. Um, but uh, how do you know that, that your world that you see on your film is a true representation of a, the real world? These are the kind of questions that philosophers who haven't got anything better to do and haven't got any laundry to get done, you know, think about. Um, well, science presupposes that there is a real world that exists, and there are real distinct entities. Eastern philosophy doesn't believe that. Eastern philosophy ultimately believes, at least the dominant Eastern philosophy is pantheism, and fundamentally believes that at bottom there are no real distinctions. At the root of all things, everything is one. And that it's only on lower levels of perception and consciousness, our consciousness of reality, that we see these distinctions, but they are illusory. Now, there's a huge swathe of the world's population that believes that. It's one of the reasons why uh, uh, scientific medicine developed right here in the West, not in India. Secondly, we have to believe that the world is rational and well-ordered to do science. If you can't repeat an experiment, then the world isn't rational. It's not ordered. It's not structured. We have to believe that uh, there is a correspondence between the rationality of my mind, what's going on in here, and what's going on 
out in the world, that there is a relationship between the two. So even Einstein asked the question, why is it that mathematical relationships that essentially only exist in my mind describe the world out there? He says that's incomprehensible. In fact, he famously said the most incomprehensible thing about the world, about the universe, is that the universe is comprehensible. Why does what goes on in here, which the materialist says is an atomic accident, describe in any meaningful or rational way what's going on out there? So we have rational minds that can comprehend the world. That's the third point that is related to the second one, which is the world is rational and well-ordered, well ordered, and we have rational minds that can comprehend it. The fourth assumption is that for every finite contingent effect in the world, there is a cause. This is the idea of causality and the uniformity of those causes. In other words, in all those basic things that you do every day, you know, the gardening, the laundry, the cooking, you know, fixing the car, all of those things, none of those things would be possible or understandable or comprehensible without the idea that every contingent effect requires a cause, that there is causation. And a cause is a search for a reason. When we say we want to know the cause of something, we're asking a reason for it. You know, if, you, if you're a mum and you come home, uh, or rather the, the, um, you, you come back from wherever you've been, and uh, the kids' rooms are just an absolute pigsty. And uh, so you call the children, you say, right, the games' room and your bedrooms are, are just a terrible mess. I only tidied them yesterday. What has been going on here? Who did this? It's not good enough if they say, don't know, is it? Because those, the games room and the, the, the bedrooms got messed up somehow. There was a causative agent. And we never accept the explanation that there is no explanation. You're looking for the reason. So a search for a cause always is a search for a reason for a thing. A reason is a rationale. So when people say to you, well, you know, the universe just popped into existence, you know, without reason. Well, then at root, at bottom, the universe is totally irrational. And your mind is only a part of that irrational universe. So the idea of science and knowledge implodes. It's impossible. And the fifth assumption is that the same cause produces the same effect under the same conditions. So, you know, like my grandma's baking, if you do the same thing, she could do it every single week. She could produce beautiful cakes, and they always tasted as good. That is required for our understanding of the sciences. You do the same thing under the same conditions, you'll get the same result. If that were not the case, our human experience would be total confusion and complete chaos. We wouldn't be able to rely on anything in the world at all. So the Christian worldview coming into the magic of ancient paganism, which was pantheistic and polytheistic, and couldn't develop a coherent understanding of reality, it was only a matter of time before what we call now this uh, scientific method developed. And many of the reasons for that are really given there for us in Scripture. Uh, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 
we read there in the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is a stupendous statement. I mean, we could spend just an hour just talking about this, but here you have the independent ontological trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The earth was formless uh, without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, God spoke. So there actually, I think you've got all three members of the Trinity operating. You've got the transcendent God calling everything outside of himself into existence. Now, you've got distinction there already within the being of God. Transcendence means distinction, different. Uh, uh, there is space between, right? Distinction. So, already in God's own being and nature, you have distinction that is intrinsic to His being. There's a relational character to God before He created anything. There was subject-object relation in the Godhead before anything was created. So, that means God is truly transcendent. He's truly distinct from what He has made. Now, this is a difficult concept to grasp. It's even difficult to articulate. But in pantheism, uh, creation is an extension of God. It's not created by God. God is everything. Okay, so all that is, all that has existence in pantheism is God, small g. So the creation, or what we would call the, what we call the natural order, is uh, an extension only of God himself, of ultimate being. That God cannot be personal because there's no distinction in His being. Let me try and uh, unpack that a little bit for you. How do you know that you are yourself? Ever asked yourself that question? Intuitively, yes. But if you were to analyze that intuition, how do you know that you are a self, you are an individual, you are an I? Can I suggest that it is because you are aware that you are not the person sat next to you, that there is a distinction, that you are not the chair you're sitting on, that you are not the ceiling above you, that the fact that you are in an environment where there is otherness means you are self-aware that you are, there is a distinction. Interestingly enough, some uh, studies have suggested that the babies think they are the same as their mother for a few months or a few weeks. You know when a baby starts to recognize that its mother's left the room? When they start to develop this understanding that they are now separated and there's a distance between them. And initially, they, there's evidence that they are not sure that they are in any way different from their mother. I've read that. How much truth in it is, I'll leave that to you. But we are aware that we're a self because we're aware of the not-self. The not-self gives us our sense of God and the creation around us, gives us a sense of individuality. Now, even within the being of God, there is distinction. There are three persons. So there is relationship. So there are personal attributes and characteristics. God is love. But if God were not tri-personal, how could God be loving before He created the universe? What would He be loving? 
This is the problem with Islamic uh, thought um, and all uh, monotheistic ideas that are theistic but not Trinitarian. God is not transcendent. He is essentially defined by the relationship he sustains to what he's created. Otherwise, there's nothing for God to know. What if God does, if there is not distinction within God's being, the Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father through the Holy Spirit, what did God know before he created the universe if there is no trinity? What did he will? There is no subject-object relation. Now, this is, a, this is probably a way you've never even thought in before, but this is very, very important for Christian apologetics. That the root of everything, this is where definition and predication, naming and definition begins. It's impossible on any other worldview. Defining and naming distinct things begins so that there can be rationality, begins with the personality of God, the infinite personality of God in the Trinity who was in eternal relationship where there was knowledge and love. So God is not defined by His creation, neither is the creation an extension of who He is. That's why bare theism that's not Trinitarian always leaves you with pantheism. What is, is merely an extension of the ultimacy of being, which is impersonal if there's not a personal, relational trinity. If you want to understand that better, you have to buy my book, Why I Still Believe, which I unpack that a little bit more. Uh, It's not original to me. You'd have to go and read Cornelius Van Til to understand that better, but I don't recommend you begin your apologetics reading there. It's a bit tricky. But this is, that's, the, that's the foundation of the creation account is the triune God calling these distinct entities into existence. And that's the beginning of naming and the beginning of predication of every kind. So, there's a real distinction. The Christian worldview begins with a real distinction between God, the creator, and the creation. And you know, that simple single point... It's probably the most important thing you can know in Christian apologetics. Because that, defined, that, that speaks to morality, it speaks to history, it speaks to everything. There's a transcendent God who created us. That's the foundation of it. They can never be fused. Even in Christ, Chalcedonian formulation is that the two natures of Christ are in unconfused union but they're not mixed. Man does not become God. God does not become man. The creator-creature distinction is even maintained in the person of Jesus Christ. You're not divinized in God. You don't become a God. You discover your true humanity in Jesus Christ. He's the second Adam. I digress. So, This gives us the basis of cause and effect relationships. God creates. Cause, effect. Gives us the groundwork for science. It should be noted as well that idolatry is the worship of the effect rather than the cause. So all idolatry is rooted in worshipping something that has been created rather than, which includes nature, what we call nature, which is a personification, rather than worshipping God, who is the cause of all things. That's the nature of idolatry. 
In this uh, creation account as well, the word let is used that indicates creation is a free activity of the transcendent God. He's doing it freely. He says, let, let there be, let there be, let there be. So, creation does not become a necessary extension, a logical extension of there being something. Rather, God, in the freedom of His own infinite personality, creates all things. And then God names these entities light and darkness, day and night, expanse, dry ground, waters. This is the activity of God giving identity to these various aspects of His creation, indicating that the world is real. So, I don't need the philosophers to... uh, bamboozle me with the problem of perception because God who called all things, if that is true, that God calls all things into existence and names things, there is a real world and we have real access to it. He's made us then in His image. And this is why John 1, 1 through 3 is relevant. God who is the logos, the logic the reason He creates all things through the Word, through the Word of God, through the Son, not an impersonal Greek philosophical abstraction, but through the Son, He creates all things. And because this logos, this reason, this Word is the means of creation, it's not arbitrary, it's rational, it's ordered, and that's why rationality and logic characterize the universe. That uh, P and not P cannot both be true at the same time. That bears and antelopes are indeed different creatures, not one and the same thing. In uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, humans are made in God's image, a rational image, and are entrusted with the responsible stewardship of the earth, and this delegated authority presupposes that we are capable of rationality like God is. Adam becomes the first uh, zoologist, names, defines the creatures, and uh, is given a rational stewardship. Not a rationalistic stewardship, but a rational stewardship, a reasoned stewardship over all things. Now, there's another important principle that emerges from the Scripture. Well, there's two that I want to highlight uh, for you that lies at the foundation of the science. In Genesis 8.22, Noah steps gingerly out of the ark into a new world after the flood. And he encounters a world that was very different from the world that he left a year earlier. And God, in Genesis 8.22, makes a promise about the uniformity of the characteristics of the world. Because he's just flooded and destroyed the world that then was, and Noah emerges into a very different world, he guarantees to Noah the uniformity of the seasons, the regularity of nature by his word. Interestingly, it's not by a series of observations. It's because God says so, and he guarantees, therefore, the uniformity of cause and effect. I want to suggest as well that prophecy in the Bible guarantees something very important about God's governance of history. When you uh, 
it's really a deductive argument. You go from God's certain word to a certain conclusion. The non-Christian scientist, on the other hand, uh, he borrows, as Stephen pointed out, this law of uniformity really from Christianity. Uh, but he gets there, he thinks, by a series of observations. He says, well, okay, I think all swans are, are white. He says, because all the swans I've ever seen have always been white. Swans are white. What needs to happen for his certain theory, his certain inductive scientific theory to be thrown down? He just needs to be having a picnic one day and there's a black swan to fly in. Because his access to all the facts is limited. So he's, he thinks he has a principle of uniformity based on induction, but in fact he doesn't. Because as was pointed out in the last session, induction, the inductive method of going from a particular instances of a thing to a general conclusion already presupposes the validity of the uh, inductive method. In fact, you always use induction to justify induction. The truth is, as uh, Hume proved, we cannot, uh, without God, without the presupposition of God, believe, we have no warrant to believe that the present will be like the past, that the future will be like the past. We certainly don't get there from induct. The fact that I've observed the sun has risen for the last 12 months every morning does not guarantee, it's not logically guaranteed in a way that it will rise tomorrow. If this creation is not ordered and governed and structured, by God, and guaranteed by the Word of God. The scientist then who is a Christian, you see, the, the non-Christian scientist then only has his probabilities. But the scientist who is a Christian, he really has a deductive argument. He begins with the universal, not the particular. He begins with God and the earth's behavior as promised and guaranteed by the Creator of heaven and earth. And so he moves from the universal to the particular. And so the Christian scientist's conclusion in terms of the regularity of nature is actually a certain conclusion. It's a deductive, certain conclusion because it's based not on my observations but on the Word of God. So the biblical overview that I've just given you highlights how scientific facts can then be interpreted correctly. We can then, in possession of these realities, the creator-creator distinction, the, the distinction between the various entities that have been created, the guarantee of regularity and uniformity by God allows us to approach the world as scientists. This is the exciting thing about being a Christian. We don't denigrate or run down science. We run down scientism and materialism, which are worldviews or religious philosophies that undergird the thinking of some scientists. Do you hear the distinction? You can approach science from one of two worldviews, an impersonal, materialistic, naturalistic vision of reality, or a Christian theistic vision of reality. And the Christian theistic one allows us to interpret the evidence correctly and reach true conclusions in a way that where the non-Christian scientist most of the time when he does reach true conclusions it's only because he's borrowing from our religion. Because you can't really do medicine on the basis of non-Christian assumptions. 
You can't really do science on the basis of non-Christian assumptions. Let me illustrate this for you with something I use in some of my debates. Before there was Wii and Nintendo and uh, whatever else, Game Boy and Xbox and all this rubbish that people play today, uh, there were join-the-dot puzzles, or connect-the-dot puzzles, I think we call them in Canada. Connect-the-dot puzzles teach children to draw and recognize design, purpose, and shape. So sometimes it's by numbers, so that if they can read their numbers, they can join the dots and they make the picture. Now, think for a moment that, about those pictures. The dots, when they are connected, what emerges is the picture, is the design of the author of the picture. That is, the, the particulars, right? the, if you like, the, um, the aspects, the different particulars in that, that picture, which appear unrelated, when you go by the author's plan and you join those dots, the picture emerges. It might be a house, might be a car, might be a horse. The picture emerges. You discover meaning. Right? As you do that scientific work, you discover meaning in the picture. In the non-Christian view of things, in the naturalistic view of things, well, there is no relationship. There are dots on the page, but there's no author. There's no designer. There is no pre-established pattern to find because there is no author. Those dots, if you like, are the facts of our experience. They've been spewed out of the womb of chaos and given us this universe. But there is actually no designer of the picture. There's no numbers that tell us how to join the dots. We do not discover anything in the real world of meaning. There's no purpose to discover. It's irrational. It's purposeless. It is, by definition, chaos. So human philosophy and the human sciences become psychology. They become purely a process of us imposing our idea on the data of our experience. So you draw your picture and I'll draw mine. And so I often say then to my debate opponent, so what's this debate about? We're just arguing about psychology. I've got my vision of the world, you've got yours. There is no criteria for judging which one's right and wrong because there is no purpose to this. There is no meaning out there. There's no God. You can't go into a laboratory. You can't go into a doctor's surgery. You wouldn't want a surgeon to open you up and start working on you on the basis that there is no true uniformity in nature, would you? You know what? I might just twist, uh, fix those arteries to this and bring that down here and that up over there. See if that works. No, you, you hope and pray that they will operate actually on a Christian theistic model, that there are distinctions between the arteries, that those are not illusory, that what he did last time with the patient and it worked, it will work again this time. And that the universe, the laws that operate now, as we call them, will be the same. So, when you actually look at the Evidences of science, as we've looked, taken our worldview and looked at the world in terms of it, we can then look at the evidences we find in the science and find that it favors uniformity and causality. Some uh, uh, scientists have suggested, and some philosophers have suggested, that um, the quantum level uncertainty in Heisenberg's uncertainty principle 
breaks down the cause-effect distinction at the most basic level. And that the idea of causality as a universal principle is not valid. You may have heard this. Um, I'm no physicist, so I don't understand all of the details. But this isn't actually a justified conclusion because the uncertainty at that level is related to the properties of the electron. And that too is only due to the presence of the observer. So it's the presence of the observer that makes the... Uh, that, that gives us the uncertainty at that level. The static properties of the electron, its mass, its charge, its spin are actually constants. So the, the, if, you, if somebody ever throws out to you, well, what about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? That surely undermines cause-effect. It doesn't. It's the presence of the observer uh, that actually calls this, that, that causes the uncertainty uh, to be there. In any case, if somebody is trying to be rational and is trying to be scientific about it, then they are undermining themselves in saying that we have lost the, the cause-effect distinction because your body's made up of uh, atoms and there's electrons buzzing around everywhere. Interestingly enough, I think there is, a, in the macro, in terms of the, um, uh, the, the overall structures, Einstein spoke about the highly ordered character of everything that was an He called it a miracle. It's the only thing he could... It was the only word he had to describe the beauty and order of the macro level of the universe. And at this um, atomic level, there seems to be this element of uncertainty. And there's quite an interesting image there of sovereignty and freedom, I think. God, who sees the macro, for him, it's absolute, everything is absolutely certain. It's guaranteed. For us, at our little level... Things seem uncertain. Just take that one home with you and meditate on it. The scientist has to believe then in the reality of the world and these distinct identities and components, whether or not she believes in the Bible or not. Whether or not he believes in Scripture is irrelevant to the fact they still have to believe that zinc and sulfuric acid, acid are distinct and real entities, which when you mix them together, yield zinc, sulfate, and hydrogen gas, two other distinct entities. Without this belief, science is doomed to extinction. The scientist also has to believe that the chemistry experiment mentioned above there, if you conduct it in Belleville or in Toronto or even in Montreal, I suspect, it may actually still work. Right? There is a dependability to the belief that those chemicals mixed together will produce the same result. Get enough Marxists together, you'll have a student riot. That kind of thing. The, the scientist also brings to bear the belief that the world on which he or she operates behaves in an orderly way. So it doesn't matter, is what I'm saying, whether you name the name of Christ and the Bible or not, to do science, we're assuming all of these things. And to, but to have those things, to, be, to warrant a belief in those things, you cannot be without the God of the Bible. And so what we have in the modern world is intellectual schizophrenia. As uh, Steve was saying in our last session, we have this insistence on rationality on the one hand, and yet we have a fundamental belief in irrationality on the other. People say, give me your evidence and it better be rational. Oh, but by the way, there is no rationality to the universe. 
And so you have a fundamental contradiction. And the reason for that is that, in the end, all knowledge is ethical. Because this isn't really about philosophy, friends. I don't want you to go away with that. It isn't even about the scientific evidence. It's about ethics. It's about morality. It's about our first session. It's about the fact that men and women are hostile towards God. Jesus says men love darkness rather than light. They love it. Why? Because their deeds are evil. The issue is not that you need to be equipped with a knockdown silver bullet apologetic argument to uh, overcome your opponent because it's an intellectual question. It isn't an intellectual question, finally. It's a moral question. Either everything I know is relative to God or it's relative to me. You know, I often shock uh, Christian audiences by saying, all truth is relative. What? You're a Christian? How can you say that? Say it's relative to God. All truth is relative to God. It relates to Him, defined by Him. If not, it's all relative to me. And what gives me the right, what gives my atomic accident up here the right to legislate what reality should be for you? Absolutely, relativism. Right? Why should your, the weed growing in your brain legislate anything for the weed growing in my brain? Unless there is this God, we see the collapse of the whole area of the sciences. Underlying all these assumptions is the scientist's belief that they are rational beings who can examine nature. And yet their worldview says that they're not rational beings and that nature is nothing more than a construct, a psychological construct. Scientists tell us today, I'm done, that uh, this is an expanding universe. That uh, the... uh, the universe is kind of going this way. It's expanding. At least there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it is. This suggests that the universe had a beginning in the finite past. And uh, scientists resisted this conclusion. In fact, Einstein himself grudgingly accepted what he called the necessity of a beginning to the universe. Philosophically, Sir Arthur Eddington wrote, The notion of a beginning to the present order of nature is repugnant to me. But we've had evidence about the universe in the last 50 years that is strongly uh, saying to the scientists what we already know, that God called a universe into existence. It had a beginning, and it will have a finite end. It's got a finite future. The second law of thermodynamics has demonstrated that the universe would end in a finite future. When we look at the genetic code at the microscopic level, we see also now what Darwin could never have possibly imagined in his wildest dreams. We see in every single cell a technology, a form of of remarkable ingenuity that far exceeds anything we are capable of in every microscopic uh, cell in your body, there are factories at work that are beyond our comprehension, compressed into something you can't even see. So we're actually seeing intelligence in the effect. Why? Because there's intelligence in the cause. We shouldn't be surprised at that. Darwin thought that life just arose out of gooey stuff, and there was such a thing as just a simple organism. 
There's no such thing as simple life. It doesn't exist. It's highly and irreducibly complex from the most simple structures that we are able to detect. According to the uniformity of nature and of cause and effect, if there is intelligence in the effect, there should be intelligence in the cause. Are we shocked by such an idea? Can we really look around our world and say, isn't it amazing that, <laughs> going back to where we started, uh, the SETI project, why would you be trying to detect a, a, some sort of coded information with listening uh, devices pointed into space? There's background noise coming from space all of the time. Right? But it seems random. What they're waiting for is somebody to send back binary numbers or the prime, uh, a binary code or prime numbers or, or something that indicates what? Intelligence. And yet they say, this universe is not the product of intelligence. And my intelligent mind now, so we will seek for intelligence out there for ET, but the very codes, the codes that are so complex we can't even understand them written into our genes, we say, no intelligence required. That's the schizophrenia of modern man in his ethical rebellion against God. Thank God that we can be the best scientists as Christians because we're in possession of a source of knowledge and truth about who God is that guarantees the truthfulness of our conclusions. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.